It is great to be back with you today. I'm just going to move this a little bit so I don't smack into it. It is great to be back. My name is Jason Gervais, and I am not the pastor here. If you're new and visiting with us, I am uh, I'm actually the associate pastor at Oxford Baptist Church, kind of the other end of town. And um, and I've been asked to to come and, and share for about three weeks here during Advent. And I am delighted to be here again with you um, this week. It is always an honor to be invited back. Um, <laughs> this is not a given. Um, and also, I wanted to uh, to say hi to uh, to Rich and Lori Wyant. We uh, we know and love these guys over at Oxford as well, and um, and just uh, have been standing with them as they continue to uh, to work in Zambia. And I uh, I narrowly avoided going on a missions trip to uh, to help build the youth center in Mongu, where these guys serve. Um, Interesting story that involved a bicycle, a black Dodge Durango, and a few broken bones in my back. But um, yeah, ask ask me about that sometime um, <laughs> if you want a long, boring story that involves painkillers. But uh, Rich and Lori, it's great to see you guys, and you are going to love it here. After church, they have an amazing buffet lunch. It is phenomenal. Right. Well. Sorry about your timing. It was really good last week. Um, Swiss Chalet, I hear, is awesome. Uh, so, very good. Um, as I mentioned last week, um, wanting to, to spend some time, here, some time here in Advent looking at Christmas songs, but not the kind of Christmas songs that we typically sing, the Christmas songs that are recorded in the first couple of books of Luke. And as I said last week, I, I declared myself neutral on the Christmas song debate. So I enjoyed singing them this morning. You guys sang well. That was not me pushing that. I had a few people looking going, that was you. I hear Christmas songs on the radio all week and now we're singing them. You're dead. You know, um, it wasn't me. But uh, they're good songs. There's a lot of truth in those songs. Um, we are. Um, we looked last week at a passage of scripture in Luke 1 called Mary's Song. And we're going to be looking at um, Zachariah's song. And so you can turn in your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 1, and we'll be looking at from around verse 67 to the end of the chapter. Um, but just before we get to work in the Word this morning, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gift of your Word, for you um, revealing yourself to us in your Word and, of course, in your Son. And that is what we are celebrating this time of year. And so, Lord, I pray that as we, as we look to your word this morning, you would make it alive to us, quicken our hearts to see the truth of your word. Come alongside us by your Holy Spirit and lead us into all truth as you, as you promised to do. We need your help today. This isn't a matter of us just being clever, but we want to be obedient and open to you. And so, Lord, speak to us today, we ask. And let us not just gain knowledge, but help us to grow in obedience and in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, shifting gears just a little, I want to tell you this story. Some of you may have heard about this, but um, back in 2005, five men left a fishing village on October 28, 2005, on the coast of Mexico, and they were expecting to go on a several-day shark fishing expedition. This was their plan. They were fishermen. They had done this before. Um, This time didn't turn out so well for them. And their ill-fated voyage hit its first snag when they lost all their heavy tackle overboard. 
Um, so then as they ran back and forth looking to, to retrieve it, the boat ran out of fuel and then strong winds pushed them further out and then the current caught them, holding them in its grasp for nearly 8,000 kilometers across the deep Pacific. During this ordeal, the boat's owner and one of the fishermen died of starvation and were buried at sea. Eventually, a Taiwanese fishing trawler spotted the boat and rescued the fishermen on August 9, 2006, near the Marshall Islands. So unimaginably, the three remaining men, Salvador Ordonez, Jesus Vidania and Lucio Rendon had survived nine months and nine days lost at sea. Nine months lost at sea. They survived by, by catching fish with improvised fishing tackle. They made hooks out of engine parts and used cables and wires. And, uh, and they caught seabirds that would land on the boat at night. And, of course, they had to eat all of this raw. Did I tell you about the buffet? Last week, guys, it was awesome. And there was not a raw seabird to be found at the buffet. Um, but this is how they, this is how they got food. They collected rainwater. They did whatever they could. And they kept their hope alive by singing and reading aloud from the Bible. And their struggle and survival is one of the longest on record. Now, that's a cool survival story. But a longer and less soggy survival story is playing out in the text today. Because about, you know, 590-ish years before the, the point where we're going to jump in and read, uh, the kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians, and the people were carried off into captivity in Babylon. And this really, statistically, historically, should have been the end of the story for the people of Judah. When you get captured and carried into exile, your your identity as a people tends to disappear. This is just kind of how this works. It's why empires like Babylon did this. But they hung on. And about 60 years later, the Persians took over. They beat the Babylonians, and under uh, under their rule, the people of Judah were allowed to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. But Judah was was still under Persian rule, though, for another... 200 or so years. They were, they were home, but they weren't free. Then another man, uh, a man named Alexander the Great rolled through and he defeated the Persians and pretty much everybody else. And he conquered most of the known world. Um, and so the, uh, the people of Judah, the, the Jews living in their homeland were under the rule of Alexander and his generals, first the, the Egyptian Ptolemies and then the Seleucids from Syria for another 170-ish so years. And so they were still home, but they weren't free. Things got very, very bad for the Jews in this last stage, and eventually it led to a revolt um, under the Maccabees, and that established Jewish independence kind of for a little while. But the Jewish rulers in the Hasmonean dynasty that came out of this, they turned out to be just as bad as the Greek rulers that were over them before. And you found true worshippers of the Jewish faith being persecuted by their own people. Um, they were as bad as the Greeks they overthrew. And their independence, such as it was, was short-lived because, of course, the Roman Empire rose up and crushed everyone who opposed it, including the Jewish resistance. And by the time we get to our text... The people of Judah had been under the boot of Rome for about 60 years. So 
while surviving being lost at sea for nine months and nine days is incredible, this people had survived some 590 years of foreign rule. They had been, in a sense, lost at sea for all that time. Like the Mexican sailors, they kept their hopes alive by reading the scriptures and clinging to the promises God had made to them, promises of a rescuer who would come for them. But God hadn't spoke to his people for some 400 years at this point, and hope was waning. It was getting hard to hold on. So then we zoom into today's text, to the story of an elderly priest named Zechariah, and, and most of us know this story very well. He and his wife though righteous and upright before the Lord, had been unable to have children. And Zechariah was a priest, and his name was drawn, and he was chosen to offer incense in the temple. And while he was in the temple, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him and told him that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son in their old age and that his son, this son, would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We know how it turns out. He didn't believe. How will I know this will be true, he says. He's, you know, with the angel that he's talking to. Since me and my wife are so old. And I mean, this is has so many parallels to the Old Testament, right? It's like, wasn't there another old couple that had a child? Yeah, right, exactly, right? Abraham and Sarah. We see pictures of this. But he didn't believe. And so the angel gives him some of his credentials, right? Here's my card. Gabriel, Archangel, I stand in the presence of the Lord. I know what I'm talking about. And because you didn't believe, you will be unable to speak until this is fulfilled. <laughs> Can't speak. And so he came out of the temple a little bit confused. He couldn't speak. The people could tell. He's seen a vision. Something was up. And that brings us um, close to the story today. We know, of course, that uh, the baby was born, and uh, the angel had told him, name him John. And, uh, and some of the relatives weren't sure that would be what he wanted, but as soon as he wrote, the boy's name is John on a tablet, whatever they used, they didn't have iPads. It was probably a piece of wood with wax on it or something, but he, he texted them, John, send, smiley face. And suddenly he could speak. Right, And so you've got this great parallel because God has been essentially silent among his people for 400 years. Zechariah, a priest, a spokesman of God, has been quite literally and physically silent for nine months. And then we jump into our text and it says that uh, his father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, praise be to the Lord the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And then it mentions, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. And we know the story of who John the Baptist became. But you've got this amazing song 
Now, in English, again, sort of like Mary's song, it, you can't see a rhythm, it doesn't rhyme, it doesn't read like song lyrics, but you can tell there's something poetic going on here. This uh, this song, I had mentioned the uh, the Latin name last last week, you know, Mary's song is referred to as the Magnificat in uh, in more traditional churches from the Latin Vulgate. This one, in the same sense, is called the... Um, Oh, shots. <laughs> I moved it. The Benedictus, sorry, means praise be. Praise be to God. It's just the first words of the song. Um, and so this is, this is recognized as a song. And there are some points we need to see before we dive in and unpack it. First of all, right off the bat, it tells us Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. So this wasn't it was different, right? It's not like Zechariah couldn't speak for nine months, and that whole time he was working on a new song, and just wait until his voice came back. Wait, this little ditty that I whipped up. No, this was not his thing that he'd been sitting on. This was the Holy Spirit coming upon him and speaking through him, and so he was he was speaking of things that he he could not have otherwise known. Okay, this is there's a divine interaction happening here. So it's Zechariah's song, but it's not in a sense. And you have this great, as I mentioned, this great parallel because he had been silent all the time, like at least nine months, right? Because when the angel spoke to him, his wife wasn't pregnant yet. And the text says that after that event, when the angel spoke to him, he still had some duties. His his priestly kind of unit was on duty at the temple for some time. And it was after he went home that his wife got pregnant. And so at least nine months, maybe closer to a year, no words. And Elizabeth said, thank you, Lord, you have, you have heard my prayer. <laughs> um, and God had been silent as well, right? And then when he speaks, when the time was right, they spoke. They spoke. God spoke through Zechariah. And he told God's people the good news. The rescuer is here. Think of how excited those Mexican fishermen would have been. Nine months and nine days. And they see... Well, it looks like a boat, but how many times have their eyes played tricks on them out there on the open ocean? But the, the mirage isn't going away, and it's getting closer. And as they wave and try to yell, their voice is probably weak from dehydration. Yep, it's a real boat, and they see us, and I can't believe it. We're rescued. God's people have been waiting and waiting and hoping beyond hope. Some of them, probably if they're wired like me, struggling horribly with cynicism. It's never going to happen. Honestly, we've been... We've been waiting for this for how long? And it looked like we had a shot, maybe, during that whole Maccabean revolt. But we saw what happened there. God's forgotten about us. But God spoke, and Zechariah spoke and said, No, good news, the rescuer is here. Rescue is at hand. The song itself breaks pretty evenly into two parts. And it is right full of um, Old Testament imagery, which makes sense. Right. Zechariah was a priest. And so he would have been I mean, all of the people would have had a pretty good familiarity with the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Isaiah, the prophet, the uh, the first five books of Moses. Right. But Zechariah would have had, we assume, an even closer understanding of that. This would have been his vocabulary. And so all of his figures of speech come from Old Testament passages. You know, the way we sometimes slip quotes from movies and things into it because everyone understands it. Well, this would have been common linguistic currency for them. But it breaks into two parts. And the first part is is um, 
you know, from verse 68 to 75, it is speaking about the Messiah. The first part is very clearly speaking about the Messiah. First thing that hit me about this, okay, John, or Zechariah rather, is an old man. And he has been blessed with a son. This is, this is a big deal. This is exciting stuff, right? By itself, this would have been phenomenal. Add to that the fact that he hasn't been able to say anything the whole time that his wife's been pregnant and all of this, the anticipation of this new baby is, is getting closer. He can't express any of this. And these are the first, it looks like this is the first words out of his mouth after the baby's born. And he spends his first sentences speaking about someone else's child. He's not talking about his son. He's excited, but it's like this has to get out first. Praise be to God. He points it to God, and here's why. Because the rescuer has come, and this is part of it, but he needs to talk about who this Messiah is and is going to be. So he makes sure, first of all, to give all the praise and glory to God. And we saw that last week with Mary, right? She didn't get uppity. She didn't gloat. She's like, the Lord has done this to me. I'll be honored because he is good, right? She's constantly pointing it back to God. Zechariah is doing the same thing. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Similar to Mary, and I think this happens when people prophesy. It's, it's common. You can see it throughout scripture. He's speaking all in past tense. He's speaking in past tense about a baby that hasn't been born yet. Right? Because it's as good as done. In God's point of view, separated from time, He knows this is, this is bankable. You know, this is solid. It's as good as happening. And so when God speaks through Zechariah, it isn't, He's gonna do this. Maybe He's gonna do this. We hope He's gonna do this. It's like, it's done, man. It's done. Paid in full. Here it is. He has come. He has come. And has redeemed His people. And that right there is, I mean, that's what they were hoping for, right? Here we are. Has God forgotten even where we are? God seems so far away. It's like, yeah, but God has come right to us. He's not standing back waiting for us to dig out and get to him. He came to us and redeemed his people, raising up a horn of salvation, a symbol of strength, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Again, we know for sure. He's not talking about his own son. These guys weren't from the house of David. Zechariah and his family from the house of Aaron, they were priests. But he knew from the prophecy that the Messiah would come from the house of David. And as the Holy Spirit speaks through him, yeah. In the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. What he's trying to point out, I think what he emphasizes in this first part, is that this rescuer, this Messiah, is very, very definitely from God. And that's important. Because we know from from the history, our historical knowledge of this time period, and, and little bits in scripture that allude to it, there were a lot of there were a lot of people who would be messiahs, would be revolutionaries, people who pretended at it, who came along and tried to rally support to themselves. Let's, let's throw off the shackles of Rome. But they weren't from God. Maybe they said they were. But they were just, they were just popular charismatic leaders that had access to sharp tools. I mean, and, and they, 
none of them lasted long. They rose up and Rome's like, here, done, and that was all you heard of them. This isn't like that. This isn't the people getting fed up. This isn't, oh, you can only step on us so long, Rome, and then we're going to rise up. Like, this is from God. God coming to us. He has raised up a horn of salvation. It's totally from God. And it's very much, he, it's rooted in what was told before. So it's from God, and in a way, it's not a new thing. He says, we knew this was coming. This is, we can be excited because the rescuer's finally here, the one that we have been hoping for. Says, you know, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies, from the hands of all who hurt us. So we see that the prophet, or the Messiah is from God, he's from the house of David as well, and he's long foretold. This is the one that they've been waiting for. This is all, this all adds authenticity, right? Now again, maybe a lot of these pretend messiahs and revolutionaries said the same sort of things. But this is a man who was old. His wife was barren. She miraculously had a child and he hasn't been able to speak for nine months. I mean, there's already supernatural credibility being added to this, right? says, this is the one that was spoken long ago. And I think what we see here when he says, you know, to show mercy to our fathers and he to remember, God is remembering his holy covenant, the promise, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I think what we're seeing here still, I I suspect... Zachariah's understanding, his hearer's understanding, initially, this is, this is a very, this is still a very political rescuer we're talking about, right? It's, this isn't metaphorical. This is rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear. We can't do that while we have been under all of these foreign rulers. To varying degrees, they have been hostile to our faith and our religion. And this is all going to end. He's going to throw off the shackles. And so there is still this sense of a political rescue. And I'm not saying he was wrong. Remember, that he's, he's prophesying, right? But I think it's part of it. And while the second part of the song, song speaks of the prophet, I think it fills in the blanks on this. If we were to stop there, you would think, okay, great. Someone's coming who's going to supernaturally, militarily send Rome back to Italy and they'll never come back to the whole and will be free. Um, but he goes on into the second part and he talks about the prophet. And he says, and you, my child, how long was he waiting to say that? And he's so excited. He's, he's a grandparent's age, at least. We don't know how old, but he's seen... He's seen friends and relatives have children and their children grow up and maybe some of them have children and he's never been able to say, and now you, my child, and he's got this baby. You know, he's nowhere near that two-month mark where sleep deprivation has solidly set in and you're like, and you, my child. Take this child before I throw him into the stable. Um, This is just the sheer joy, right? Because he's the dad. He didn't have to deliver the baby. Um, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Such great wording. Again, right? He's 
Holy Spirit speaking through him. But when the angel spoke to Mary in the last chapter, he says, you're going to have a son and he will be called the son of the Most High. So it's very clear. This boy that was born, this John, is very, very special. But he's not the Messiah. There's a, there's a strong distinction, right? He talked about the Messiah, and now you, my son, different from this other person I'm talking about, you will be a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. This was His son. And just like the, you know, and I can just, I can just imagine Zechariah's heart swelling with pride, because what did the angel tell him? I mean, if you flip back, when he's having that episode in the, in the temple, uh, sorry, I had it marked. Sorry, yeah, back in verse 11 and 18. Yeah, so, and the angel said to him, don't be afraid, you're going to have a son, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. What father doesn't want to hear that? What parent doesn't, of course they're going to bring joy to my heart, right? But are, are they going to do okay? I'm going to do my best to raise them, but what kind of person are they going to turn out to be? And God in his graciousness, when he first announced this, it's like, Zechariah, this is good news. This boy is going to bring joy to your heart, and many are going to rejoice because of him. And so I can just feel his, the pride of his heart, not, not an evil pride, but just a love and an excitement for what this boy is going to become. You are going to prepare the way for him and give his people the knowledge of salvation. We see that just as the Messiah is from God, clearly, so is the prophet. This is, this is part of the plan. God has his hand in this birth as, as much as he does in a way, well, not as much, very differently in the birth of, of the Messiah. But God has his hand all over the birth and life of this child, of this boy. You know, they're promised this child in their old age, and here he is. And everything that he's doing here points back to God. He's going to glorify God. He's a prophet of the Most High. He's preparing the way for the Lord. And then he says something, and this is where I see the big contrast between the sort of rescue he seems to be talking about in the first part, right? A horn of salvation out of the house of David, freedom from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, right? And now he says, you're going to give your people the knowledge of salvation or of rescue through the forgiveness of their sins. I mean, that's good, but that's very different from... And we're going to kick Rome's butt. Sorry, can I say that? Um, it says, you're going to give the people, you're going to give his people knowledge, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Salvation from sin is what the prophet is going to be talking about. As he prepares the people, his message is not so much sharpen your swords and get ready. It's going to get wet, but we're going to win. It's, hey, you can have salvation from your sin. And we know from John's life, the way when, when he becomes, when he comes public in his ministry, he's talking about that. Of course, salvation from sin is not good news unless you can convince people that they're sinful. And many people in that day and age, like our day and age, think, I'm not really that bad. And we know, as we read in the Gospels, John was not, um, wasn't delicate in his speech. <laughs> he was he was very forthright. You brood of vipers! <laughs> you know he he shot from the hip. This guy he was very very straight up. 
But he is proclaiming, he's giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And these next verses where he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is just, these are two verses that are just dripping with Old Testament imagery. I mean, the number of verses you could refer to that share these kind of imagery goes on and on. But I want to read just just a couple that I think pointed out because they're, it's messianic language. It ties itself to the prophecies and the promises in the Old Testament of a coming Messiah and what he would be like. For example, in, in uh, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, and he's speaking of the day of the Lord, and he says, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves that have been released from the stall. This picture of the sun rising, not, not to burn oppressively, not to scour the earth and none escapes from its heat, right? That can be taken a couple of ways. We, we read that verse earlier where it's like that could be, that could be seen as judgment as much as anything. But this is, this is good. This is Mr. Golden Sun, right? With healing in his wings. This imagery comes to us from heaven. And then again in the book of Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9, he says they will, they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Wow, it sounds familiar. It's like he's reading our newspaper. Uh, and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He's talking about the coming Messiah in, in terms of the difference between light and darkness and the great relief that light brings to people who are in the dark. And, and Zechariah just gushes with these images. It's like, this is what's happening, my son. You are going to be the one that comes and prepares the people. How are you going to prepare? You're going to let them know. You're going to give them knowledge of salvation from their sins. Because through the great mercy of our God, remember the merciful God that we, we were promised, the one that will rise like the sun with healing in his wings, that will bring light into those who've been living in darkness and death. This isn't, this isn't, oh man, here comes God and he looks angry. This is, God has come to rescue us. And my son, you get to lead the way. You get to tell the people. He's just gushing with this. But he does talk about two kinds of salvation. And we know this was a confusion for people right up until the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. When are we going to get political salvation here, Jesus? Uh, are we going to throw off Rome now? When are we going to do it? Some people a lot smarter than me suggest that that was the big, the big issue that eventually led to Judas turning on Jesus. Disillusionment about the kind of Messiah he was going to be. We know that uh, there was an expectation that, okay, if we're going to follow this guy and God's with him, at some point, this is going to get military. And Jesus wasn't talking like that, and he was actually talking about dying, and that was not what he signed on for. But we know there was this, this different expectation. But I, I know that God in his wisdom spoke even through Zechariah at this point to say, that's, that's so short-sighted, guys. I get it. 
Right? God doesn't ignore it. He says in the first part of this prophecy, yeah, you know what? A horn of salvation, freedom from your enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. Yes, God's not forgotten about the suffering of his people in exile. But God sees the bigger picture. Like imagine, for example, if the Taiwanese fishermen who found those Mexican castaways, okay, pretend you're one of the Mexican castaways on the boat. You've been eating raw seagull for nine months. And here comes this boat, and you cannot even believe your eyes. We're saved. And the Taiwanese fishermen who found them offer to save the men. We will save you. Here, here's cases and cases of water. And here, here's some food and and even a little stove to cook it on. And hey, take my fishing rod. It'll be easier to catch fish. Yet take that. Great. Awesome. Happy we could save you because really your problem was starvation and dehydration, right? That's what was killing the people on the boat. They didn't have water to drink and food to eat, so they were dying. And so could you imagine on the boat? What the heck, man? We want to get off the boat. Like... Don't give me water. I have a knot of water. I want to get off the water. It, it would not, it would be salvation technically, but to them it would seem so short-sighted. It's like, no, the problem is not just that I have not enough food and water. The problem is I am miles from shore. And I have no way of getting back. I'm not a fish. I'm not supposed to be out here. Right? More food and water without a way home would only buy them a bit of time. It would have been a very short-sighted salvation. And this was the plight of the Jewish people and of all people. The rescuer was coming. This was certain. Zechariah was talking about it like it was already done. And Zechariah's song showed them and us that their wishes were too small. Yes, wishing to be free from Rome. They desired freedom from Rome. That's valid, but God was offering freedom from sin. And let's not forget, it was sin that led them into captivity in the first place. And it's the thing that holds us in captivity in the first place. And this is why the blessing would be to all people. This is it, right? If the Messiah was just going to come to free Israel, the people of Judah in that time and place, that's hardly a blessing for all people. But no, he came to to fix the condition. John would come to prepare the people for Jesus, and Jesus would come to make a way for us to get home. Just like the people in first century Palestine, just like the Mexican fishermen, that's the boat we're into, literally. (laughs) Uh, We just need a way to get home, and that's what Jesus came to offer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. And we thank you for this time of year when we can focus on a story that is so full of joy and hope. It's, it's difficult for us, even though we hear it year after year. It's difficult for us as we, as we get into it to not be full of hope and joy. And Lord, then at the same time, it's, it's also difficult sometimes for us to not walk out of church and slip back into what maybe feels like the hopeless and joyless uh, struggles that we face. Father, I pray that today and at this time of year, Advent 2016, that the hope that we see in Scripture and that we perceive would not just be for this season. You are not a short-sighted God. When you come to save, you come to save completely. 
save to the uttermost. And, and Lord, that's what we need. We don't just want hope to get through the day. We want hope to get home. And we know that you offer that. Lord, I pray for everyone in this place. If they've put their faith and trust in you, I pray that you would fill their hearts with hope and joy and that they would realize that as they struggle with things, because we all do, help them to keep their eyes on the big picture. Freedom from debt or freedom from a problem in a relationship or a problem at school or freedom from a job that's not satisfying. That Those are valid requests, but it's short-sighted. If we got that but didn't have freedom from the sin that will kill us, quite certainly, we've lost. In fact, as your word says, we could gain the whole world. If we lose our soul, we've got nothing. Help us to take the big picture and and to trust in you and lean on you for freedom, for salvation, from the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, for those in this place, if there are they, if there's those here that haven't yet put their faith and trust in you, maybe they're just here because it's Advent. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see. Give them the perspective that you gave Zechariah through your Holy Spirit. To see that the problems that seem big to us are, are usually not. And the sin that we ignore, uh, that will kill us. And so I pray that you would help us to you know, draw, draw folks who haven't yet put their faith and trust in you to see their need for salvation. Open their eyes to the gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.